Calissa Ray brings to us the intersection of race, gender, and sexuality in her poetry collection, Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat. Grace work dissects her journey from the Midwest to the South as she's confronted with a collective pain inflicted upon those who preyed upon black bodies. We talk with Ray about the power of language within poetry, her criticism of black girl magic and its ties to the strong black woman archetype, how she came to accept her queerness, and the lessons she learned from the women in her family and connections to the South. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. Stay tuned for another episode of the Volker Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Denny. And I'm Veronica. And today we have a wonderful, wonderful poet that will be um, gracing our podcast microphone today. Um, we got word of this person, um, uh, someone who's very dear and near to our hearts, uh, Disha Filia. She reached out to us after having um, done an interview with our special guest. And she she like emailed us immediately after the conversation. And I think I, I was happened to like wake up when the email <laughs> came and it was like one, I think it's one something in the morning Two when I more. when I read it and I was like, oh yes, if Miss Disha says we need to do it, we're gonna do it. And we're so glad that we that we did today on our show. We have Calissa Ray. She is a poet, queer rights activist, journalist, and educator in Durham, North Carolina, and graduate of the Queens University MFA program. Her chapbook, Real Girls Have Real Problems, was published in 2012, and her recent work has been seen in Pink, Sundog Lit, Crab Fat, Damaged Goods Press, and more. Unlearning Eden is her forthcoming, is forthcoming from uh, White Stag Publishing. This um, and she is currently the writing center director at Shaw University and the newest writer for NBC Black and Black Girl Nerds. And today she is on our show to talk about her wonderful poetry book, Ghosts in a Black Girl's Throat. Um, it is a beautiful collection and we are so excited to talk to you and and hear you. We have begged and pleaded <laughs> in, our, in, our, in our hearts and our minds and, and we got our, our wish for her to be able to read some of her poetry today. Welcome to our show. How are you doing today? Doing good. Thank you so much for having me. Um, we, again, are so happy to have you here, and we have asked you earlier um, if you wouldn't mind uh, reading us some of your pieces, uh, some select pieces from your book. Sure, I can do that. Um, I think I should say, before I read my title piece, that y'all got, so I'm going to give you a little bit of context, but also y'all have a bit of an old bio. I actually quit that job to do this full time. So um, when the book came out, I left Shaw University and left academia after 
many years and uh, decided to go towards my passion of full-time writing. So uh, yeah, it's been a wild journey. Disha became my mentor shortly after I did that to help me transition. So I'm just so, so just grateful that she linked us up together. Um, so before I get into it, the title piece um, is really all about my transition from being a Midwestern girl um, and going to the South and learning about the history of the Wilmington 1898 race massacre that occurred in Wilmington, North Carolina uh, and being black and queer in the South and how traumatic that is. So we're gonna start with Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat, if that's okay. Yes, thank yes, you. Yes, please. The South will birth a new kind of haunting in your black girlness. Your black womanness becomes a poached confection, honeyed enigma pledging to be allegiant. The muddied silk robe waving in their amber grains of bigotry and your skin will be a rhetorical question, blood-stained equation no one wants to answer. You will be the umber tawny terracotta tongues flattered on their American flag. Beautiful brown spangled anthem that you are. You will be the bended knee in the boot of their American dream and they will stitch your mouth the color of patriarchy. Call it black girl magic when you rip the seams. Southern Belle is just another way to say stayed in her place on the right side of the pedestal and your sun-kissed skin will get caught in a crosshair of questions. Like, where are you from? No, where are you really from? And you will be asked where are you from more than you were asked how are you doing? Like this name, this tongue, this hair ain't a tapestry of things they made you forget. The continent they forced to the back of your throat cause that's what they will come for first, the throat. They know that be your superpower, your furnace of rebellion. So they silence you before the coal burns, resurrect monuments of ghosts on your street to keep you from ever looking up. Build a liquor store on every corner so you don't notice the curated segregation, call it redistricting. Our cities muzzled the men with gallows for tongues, call it obedience school. Synthesize ghettos, graffiti them in gold and call it urban redevelopment. And the South will make bitch a sweet exaggeration of your name, since speak come when spoken to. The leash will always be taught, always gripping around a word you never said, your body an apparition, hologram of its former self, too much magic in one room, torns, sorcery, witchcraft, and we be witches, don't we? Reassembling the chandelier of our reflection, we spin a web of shade and make it a place to rest under, broad oak that it is. But they will sick, suck the mucus from our jubilation, our gatherings now a cancer. We will clap back with shaking hands cause that's all we got. These voices, these throats, this righteous indignation, they will start with the muzzle. Always taught to melt the metallic of our wills. There will always be a rusted bit in the mouth of the horse that was too stubborn to ever be spooked by their ghosts. Ah. Yes. Yay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, that, that, that title piece, obviously, uh, deserves to be the title piece just the name alone is is amazing it's an amazing piece of work so thank you so much for um sharing that with us um the collection of poems uh you have it by element and in fire it really helped establish the tone of your book one of the things we loved about it is how you destroyed all the things that white people love and make them very keenly aware 
that they would not have the luxury of enjoying those things if not for the hard work of Black folks. It must have been a laborious process, but can you let us in on the process of birthing these poems? Mm. I love the way you put that. That's the first time someone has put the impetus of my, my poems like that. So I love that. Um, I'll be honest, this was a labor of love in my MFA program working with Claudia Rankin. And so I was, I think that this was like predestined because what are the odds that I would, you know, be this girl from Indiana that would move to North Carolina and then, you know, flunk out of my undergrad because of racism, transfer, and then get into a master's program after applying three different times. And who was my professor? Claudia Rankin. And so just, I think, you know, I'm a very spiritual person. And I think that that was, it was destined for this, you know, for me to arrive there and for this to be crafted. So I, I built these poems about the labor of Black women, particularly, specifically Black queer women, uh, and the trauma of being so, and the trauma of living in a religious household like I did, um, with her. And I felt safe to build these poems about these tough social justice uh, issues with one of the best <laughs> poets to talk about racism in the world, you know, and her and Ada Limon, another world-renowned poet, helped me craft these pieces and do it in a way that um, showed my, my lived experiences not as isolated incidences like white folks will want us to believe that my narrative is not the isolated incident, that this is happening to hundreds and thousands of other, you know, black girls. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think that that's what helped me carry such large subjects, just to answer your question. I was in community with people that I felt safe with to do so. Um, and have always been, you know, straight out of college, I started a, a feminist poetry organization. And so I've always been in community of other Black queer femmes that have made it safe to talk about these heavy weighted topics. So, yeah. You yeah. you definitely had a, some good guidance right there because um, to have, to have uh, Claudia Rankin be the, you know, your professor and to help mm -hmm. you guide your work is, is huge. It's monumental. We have a question about her later <laughs> on. Um, but what a, what a, what a gift to have. I know I, mm -hmm. I came upon her work through her, um, uh, poetry book citizen and it, yeah. it gripped me in a way that I'm like, Oh, I didn't know you could write like this. Right. I didn't know that you could write in this way. And she is phenomenal. And what a blessing for you to have her as a teacher. Yeah. Um, each section is named after an element. Um, but with earth, you tied it with spirit. Could you uh, share us the reasoning? for naming these sections and the inclusion of spirit in this way? Yeah, so, you know, the book is about two types of ghosts, right? So I moved to this city that was haunted and monuments of Confederate soldiers stand in the middle of the city, right? But our river is flooded with the ghosts of my ancestors and so are the streets, you know, because the massacre, just like Tulsa, they killed all the black people in the town and then they threw their bodies in the river, right? Um, and so when I moved there, it was scary. Um, but also I say that I had to call upon the ghost of my ancestors to help me get through because I'm a survivor of trauma and I didn't learn that until I moved to the town. And so I, you know, metaphorically and literally had stuff that people told me not to talk about. You know, they say in a black home, you don't talk about certain stuff. So I had hid all these things in my throat that they told me not to speak up about. And I moved to a town that was haunted. And so 
I wanted to break it into elements to show how you have to break something up down. You have to burn it down with fire to build it back up, but also to show that I had to speak to my ancestors to get through my college experience and also to show the spirit and the earth from which I came. I had to really go back and talk to my matriarchs and talk to my grandmother and my mom about stuff that they had repressed and I had repressed for years and years. Uh, and then I learned about 1898 from the matriarchs at my church. So I needed spirit that section to really be about the calling upon my ancestors to really help me heal through through intersections of trauma. So yeah um in your poem outside the canon words to never use did you start with words that you that are commonly said not to use excessively while transition to hmm. words that black people are told to not refer themselves or when speaking of the atrocities committed against them yeah, so I, like I said, I started in academia, but then I transferred over to slam poetry, you know, as I've always been a performer, my parents put me in, you know, performing arts very early. When I went over to slam poetry, though, I learned about how oppressive language is uh, for people of color. And, you know, I went to private school, so that's not something that we were taught when I was growing up. My mom thought she was trying to shield me, but what that did was that didn't open my eyes to how language and academia and school is so othering and oppressive. And so what I try to do with this poem, and if you notice in several of these other poems, I'm talking about language, because I wanted to show how it's used as a tool to yet again silence us, right? To tell us what we can and cannot talk about, um, but also as a weapon um, to hide, as you know, the history of hiding information inside books, the whole old wives tale that if you want to, you know, keep information from a black person, you hide it inside of a book, because that's where our freedom lies. Um, and so for me, when I became a professor, ironically, I had held on to so much shame around language and I crafted this piece um, after having taught um, before I went to my master's program, I taught for many years and taught both um, elementary and college age students. And I wanted to really dive into all of the things the Oxford Dictionary and the grammar book says to not say in your writing. Uh, but ironically, all of the things that like I've reclaimed as a black woman <laughs> that uses slang in my dialect and um, you know that, that hood speech as I say in one of my other poems. And so I wanted to turn that on its head and say, you say that we can't say this stuff. Well, you be damned, I'm gonna say it anyway. <laughs> and so um, that's what this is about. Uh, because my whole thesis was called Outside the Canon. That's where the title comes from. The idea behind all of the words that they deemed less than, you know, the jargon and the dialect that, you know, that they told Maya Angelou and Nikki and Langston that was less than um, and outside the canon. Yeah, you you um you spoke about coming from uh, the slam poetry world. Mm -hmm. uh, at what point did you just? How did you? First of all, how did you find yourself there? <laughs> uh, how did you discover slam poetry? And what were the things that they that you found yourself gaining from that time period mm. that helped you within all of your writing? Ironically, academia. So, uh, so just to like do the timeline. So when I left UNC Wilmington because of racism, so I failed out because this this racist teacher uh, failed me. 
Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to pack up and move to a black ass town. So I'm going to go to an HBCU. And when I, when I got to the HBCU, once again, fate. So I walk into my first class and the woman is a renowned black blind poet. And she tells me, you need to do this for the rest of your life. When she heard me my first day, we had to spit a poem. She was like, everybody get up here and just like say the, the poem, you know. I spit an original and she was like, is that your poem? I was like, sure is. And she was like, yep, you're going to need to do that for the rest of your life. And I was like, okay, sure. And ironically, days later, I meet who was going to be my husband uh, because this whole like little poetry slam troupe walks in and say, hey, we're the poetry troupe at this, you know, at the school. If you want to join, you should sign up today. And I was like, dope. Like, I didn't know that that was a thing. Like, I didn't know you know, you could perform your poems this whole time. I thought I was just reading, you know, Maya and Langston's poems on the page. So it's funny how academia led me to slam poetry. I met my husband and that was back in 2010, you know, and we started slamming on the national circuit immediately. Like I met him instant chemistry and he was like, want to slam with me? I was like, sure. (laughs) So we just started like signing up for slams and then we became a part of a nationally touring team. Uh, and I started winning all the slams that I entered. I was, people were like, yeah, girl, get it. So um, yeah, that's how I, I found my entry through academia and then learned that like academia wasn't really for me. <laughs> so I used it as a, as a escape route to, to get out and find freedom through being on stage. So yeah. What year were, were you slamming? So I slammed, you know, I joined the Winston-Salem team with my husband in 2011, 2012. Uh, I was on the team for like three years. I got out. He stayed in. Uh, So yeah, but we've been like traveling since to the, the first slam I went to was in 2010. So upwards of 10 years since we've been together and married, we've been traveling, going to slams. So yeah, 10 or 11 years. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. That's a few years after I had stopped, stopped slamming. So I was just wondering oh, when, were, if I had ever like cross paths with you or whatever, but yeah, that was a long, I did it a long, long time ago. <laughs> long time ago I think it was like around the time where um it it felt like there was this shift I think you know Mm -hmm. you know slam started in Chicago Mm -hmm. probably like a really white dominated Mm -hmm. thing and then I think I was coming in right where black folks was really taken Mm-hmm. over it to the point where uh, a person on the opposing team had this whole discussion and see he didn't understand why the poetry had to change like it was he didn't understand mm. and I was just like because we do it better <laughs> right well and doesn't that go full circle for what we're talking about the mm-hmm. idea behind like well you know why do these new voices have to enter the scene the canon you know what I mean yeah and that's funny because I feel like I got into it right when those voices that you're talking about were at their peak. Like I got in when Teresa Davis and Ebony Hogan and Mahogany Brown, like that's how she became my mentor. I met Mahogany at a slam at the National Poetry Slam. And she was like, girl, I can't, I got you. I got you. We're going to get through this together. So yeah, yeah, yeah Mahogany- I was there right been connected with a lot of the people that we've had on this show so she is, she's like the mothership yes <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know like when because I 
like I told Mahogany, I come to, I came to the United States as an immigrant. So I didn't know like the history and everything like that, but I learned it through her poetry. Mm. So it was mm. like, I, I think that's when like, you know, the shift of like the people, they can't, they can't seem to understand it, but it, I think it's the stories that you, that, you know, especially black women tell those yeah. are the stories that are relevant, that actually has substance yeah. and has depth. So you know, going back to your poetry, you were talking about circus acts, no more black girl magic, <laughs> um, made us recognize and think of what we expect from black women. How important was it uh, to incorporate all of this into your poetry? Very, you know, because this is a, <laughs> a taboo one because with, you know, Mahogany being my mentor and, and us being so close, people always ask me about this one because, you know, she's one of the the starters of black girl magic being embedded in our culture um and i had to really sit with that because i've been you know as a as a journalist and an essayist i'm writing a lot about the opposite of that and so i i had to write this poem because i saw generations of black women basically run themselves into the ground with burnout overachieving perfectionist perfectionism, codependency, all of the things that Black women and women of color have that's basically killing us, right? And so I had to write this piece, um, regardless of, you know, what the culture was saying about being magical, I needed to write about how I see my matriarchs kind mm -hmm. of on the opposite end of the spectrum, constantly asked to do the impossible um, at the expense of ourselves. And I can't, I just couldn't like, craft this book without talking about how we are constantly asked for expendable labor all the time. Mm -hmm. um, like even talking about it now makes me upset. I'm currently like writing an essay about it. So I'm like very charged up. But um, yeah, I've watched us like, you know, um, work ourselves into having diseases and illnesses and mental illness breakdowns. You know, I've watched family members literally, including myself, have breakdowns because we've overworked um, so that's really why this piece was so important for me personally. Um, and not that we have to give up being, you know, badass black women. You know, I, I think that both can be true. Both can be true. Um, that we need to take care of ourselves and center our healing is really what the poem is about. So, yeah. So to go back to talking about, um, Claudia, um, Rankine, in a recent interview, she was on Death, Sex, and Money, which is an amazing podcast. And she talked about how white people get to, uh, make a choice to lose their modifier and mm -hmm. get to be the people just, you know, in the world as people rather than white people. Uh, they have ownership of the category people. In your poem, American, American May, it begins with a quote from Raven Simone speaking on how she doesn't see herself as African-American, but as only American. What do you feel is one of the most dangerous things of the self erasure of ourselves? Um, really, to me, we lose centuries of history, of connection to place. Uh, to me, that's really um, <laughs> like the homegirl conversation that I wanted to have with Raven. As somebody who's been told that I look like her my whole life, um, as, as kids, we were identical. My baby picture like looks just like Olivia. <laughs> so when I heard her say that, 
I was like, er, like, no, sis, we got to sit down because you're, you're losing that modifier to me. Um, you lose the connection to centuries of place and legacy and lineage. Um, and so that is invaluable. <laughs> like you can't, it's so invaluable to me. Um, and you know, that's a contentious subject. A lot of people would disagree that it's not necessary, whatever. But I think that, you know, for me, just in me coming to learn about my lineage and my heritage and who I am and what that means about where I came from, it's important um, for me to know where I'm going. I got to know where I've been. And so um, that's really what, uh, to me, the importance is and the, the why the why behind the poem for me. Um, is to have a homegirl conversation like no we're gonna we're not gonna strip all this history we're gonna we're gonna step into it we're gonna lean into it so yeah yeah I really like that piece because it's one of those things where when I hear people say it it kind of like a record scratch mm -hmm. and you just want to be like what you just said <laughs> like, you honestly and you know it's one of those things where you have to kind of like think about what what who hurt you so much mm -hmm. where you wanted to just disregard everything mm -hmm. you know um of what is connected to this and I know that it's like it's a label like you said it's a very you know it's a contentious thing to have this discussion on um but it's necessary for you to remember that even though you might want to hold on to that idea yeah um, that people are going to always see you yeah. and the color of your skin first before they exactly. take on the American part, right? Yeah. Um, Arthur uh, Brian Broom, we had him on the show uh, a, a, a few weeks ago, and he talked about how um, we're always walking around writing a memoir in our head. Mm. How do you want the readers to see themselves through your work? <laughs> um. To me, you know, someone asked me, was this book, you know, autobiographical? And I said, yeah, but I also think that it's important to speak to the macro as well, because that's something that's happened to me my whole life. It's a racist tactic to say, oh, honey, your feelings are hurt about this isolated situation that happened to you. We're sorry. Right. And so what I wanted to do was say, no, like, yes. <laughs> and this happened to me, but also this is happening to millions of other, you know, Black women and women of color around the world. And so what I wanted to show on the first level was this like colloquial we that I use is me saying Ashe, that like the thing that happened to me, sister, I see that like it also happened to you. The violence, the racism, the sexual assault, the abuse, the silencing, the erasure of me in a white town, the, the talking about my hair and wanting to touch it like in Mad Black Bird. All of these things, these elements in this poem, I know that I'm not the only one. And so really it's a conversation of me saying the broken in you sees the broken in me, right? The hurt in me sees the hurt in you. Um, and we can talk back to each other. With that said, I think that there are a lot of conversation pieces that go beyond just being a woman of color in the book, that there are things that are universal, you know, pain, abuse, family issues, generational curses. Those are things that are universal. And so I think that the book is having a, a global conversation with everyone and not just folks of color. Cause people said that when they read it, they were like, is this book for black women? And I was like, no, it's for everybody. Don't try to do that. Don't do that. It's for everybody. So yeah. 
Yeah. Letting everybody know. Right. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of, um, I mean, other than uh, uh, that type of conversation, what are the conversations that stick out in your head when doing your your book tour? Oh my, oh, y'all. I have horror stories. Um, I can, I can tell you anonymously about a situation. Okay. So, (laughs) um, I was at a, a reading and someone asked me to say what the whole theme and the message, the lasting message I wanted people to have about my book. And when I said, I want women, specifically black women to be emboldened and courageous to release the ghosts that have been stuck in their throat and know that they don't have to be silenced anymore. I came up with this beautiful little two-liner, right? And the person clapped back and said, oh, so you think black women are more erased than white women? I lied to you, I lied to you not. It's on, it's filmed, it's filmed, right? And so they had to take it down because of, because, yeah. because it got real, it got ugly after that, right? And so I'm on this live, 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 recording and to be honest with you like I said I think that those kind of questions are tactics those are tools of manipulation right um and the ironic thing is what I told them after is do you see how this whole thing played out where like you caught me off guard I clapped back the other people on the call we all were like what we were gasping but do you see how you in that you silenced (laughs) me like you made me have to come up with quick responses and then like I got into a debate with you about my book on a live thing and so we had to have a conversation after that and yet and still they made up a thousand excuses about why they were playing devil's advocate after that um that was probably the most most horrific most horrific thing that has happened to me outside of like I've been doing a lot of podcasts and like white men on podcasts asking me just like questions about how much progress do you think a miracle is happening this book is one step towards progress <laughs> how much progress and do you think we've overcome i'm sure they we overcome it. are we close <laughs> and then you want well you tell me because you right. brought us right. up you the you one that's lacking me? melanin right 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 oh my gosh yeah sorry yeah Um, you don't deserve that platform Mm -mm. and i'm glad you kept it anonymous because i sure will look up i'll be like who that we can can talk offline we can talk offline (laughs) 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 so um you have dedicated these poems to specific women on your book um which i loved um because i'm like oh i feel like I, i i love the matriarchs in my family so it was, it was very, I think it was very cathartic to me, you know, for you to dedicate those, those stuff to the people mm-hmm. you love. Um, how did these relationships with these women shape, shape you or affected you, you know, as a person or as a woman? <laughs> I'm uh, writing all about my grandmother right now for a um, publication. And I'm just learning how much my grandmother, even with her being like the God-fearing, chase, you know, Bible-toting woman that she is, I'm learning that her influence was so deep, so much deeper than I thought. My mom is saying that now that she is having dementia, 
her mind is slipping and she's like sneaking in little, you know, little tidbit about her wild days. And I was like, see, I knew you was my grandma. I knew that your DNA is running all through me. And so I'm learning. <laughs> I'm learning about where I came from, but also I'm learning a lot about my personality that I think the women in my family are so multifaceted that we can be spiritual and faithful, uh, but we have this wild free side to us too, uh, that we, we care a lot about what people think. So we, we hide that in. Um, but it's, it's interesting to watch the same things that I grapple with the subjects I talk about in the book. The matriarchs have been there, done that in my family. You know, like they all went through these exact same things. They all had those same problems that I have. And so if nothing else, it taught me a lot about the person that I am and also where I came from. Cause I didn't know that I had family, you know, that were rooted in the South. When I came here, I was like, oh man, I'm alone. I don't have anybody here, but really my, both the matriarchs, paternal and maternal, their ancestors came from the South. We were like the, the freed state slaves came straight over here. So it just really helped me go back to like, oh, okay. That's why I feel the way I do. Cause that's running in my DNA, you know? It's so, something yeah. when you find out stories that you probably would have helped a thousand times over if you had heard them earlier, but it is yes. something, it's one of those things where it's kind of like, you realize like, this this parent or this grandparent weren't always grandma and mama you know that that they had and still have whole separate lives from you know these titles that we have deemed them with Mm -hmm. because of our birth right so it is something amazing when someone shares a detail of them growing (laughs) up and you're just like what you know like I wish I had known that because yeah. it definitely is a thing that helps you as a person grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and it to have that conversation as early as possible, I think also not only helps the child, but also helps the parent because yes. they can remember. And we had this conversation with Mahogany about like how I felt like uh, young adult novels and works aren't just for children that they're also mm-hmm. for adults for them to remember you know so that when their child does those things that they can say okay we've we've been here right and right to be able to like break those generational curses and that trauma and be mm-hmm. able to like have real conversations with it so exactly since you brought that up um, it leads me to your next question. So um, for a few weeks ago, you had an article published in Catapult titled <laughs> How Hotels, Hotels, not Hotels, <laughs> How Hotels Taught Me to Shed Shame. Uh, you wrote about your journey into understanding the power that the body holds and the shame that is attached to it by the ideologies of others. And in the article, you wrote about making a vow not to date with the intention of learning what your body wanted. In this exploration, you reconnected and began to claim your queerness. What did that time speak to you about sexuality and the autonomy of your body? You know, what's funny us talking about the matriarchs is some of that ironically started with a, a <laughs> advice my mom gave me. Um, when I went off to, to college for the second time, like the second and a half time, <laughs> I, she taught me about letting my body breathe and taking a break. Um, And she had this old saying, this is so funny that she used to say this as a like 
Sunday school teaching woman, but she used to say, you got to let the coochie breathe. Mm -hmm. And when I went to, do you know, like as a Christian woman, I was like, er, excuse me. <laughs> so I clutched my pearls and took my behind, you know, to this new city to start this school in a new place. And honestly, this is so strange, the things you keep with you. I, I don't know why that, that saying, that phrase stayed with me. And so for me, that phrase was more than just a funny joke. It was about once again, centering my healing first, right? So like, I can't put your mask on until I put my mask on first, mm -hmm. right? If the ship is going down, I got to save me first. And so that's really what I took that as that. That's what she meant. Um, let it heal, let it breathe before you like re-enter the world of sex and sexuality with whomever, you know, um, she didn't know that I was queer and still probably doesn't, even though she's read my book, but I think that that's what I internalized it as. And so I took that time to censor my healing. And isn't it funny when you start healing what you discover, isn't that interesting that when I started healing, I discovered, I was like, oh yeah, all those memories that I <laughs> suppressed and repressed, I'm queer as hell. <laughs> so. <laughs> And so it's just interesting how the light bulb went off when I spent time with myself, when I didn't have the other voices in my head for men or whoever, family, whatever. Um, and so that's what that time was for me. It was really, how can I take care of me most and center my healing and my wants and needs most before I enter into anything? And it just so happened that like I found my soulmate in a guy, but it could have been anybody you know, I really need, but before I could hear who that person was, I needed to spend that time, that quiet moment with myself. So, yeah. I, I wrote to you uh, when this piece came out and I told you that how much this resonated with me. It was, it was, mm -hmm. it was, it would, I definitely was in tears when reading it because mm -hmm. it was like, I understood it um, so much. Cause I, I think I'm like kind of in that walk of like trying to get to a place of like, full out healing and um, having to figure out exactly what I want. And I highly recommend anybody that's listening to this conversation to go and look up that article. And then, you know, uh, go ahead and stream Jasmine Sullivan music mm -hmm. along with it so that you can really understand um, this full, this full piece. And it, reaches back to what we were talking about earlier how your your work is not just for you and sharing those experiences for everybody to be really connected to it yeah so uh what piece from this poetry book we know there might be many um that still gives you pride whenever you read it <laughs> Ma uh mackerel which is why I read it so much on my book tour people are like dang Kalisa you gonna read mackerel again um and I'm like yeah hell yeah because I told myself that didn't even happen you know like my mom tried to convince me that that memory didn't happen imagine that like your mom trying to exercise you because she caught you with a girl when you were like 12 like that's traumatic as hell and so for me to be like I'm putting that in my book and you gonna tell me that I can't and you're going to buy the book. And she's bought the book for like 20 of our Sunday school people back home. In and so like, that's huge, right? Like I get to tell this memory and like be unapologetic about it. And so that's the poem that I'm like, if nothing else, that's staying in there. If they burn that book down, that, that poem is sticking around. So we'll save, yeah. we'll, we'll save, 
We'll tear it apart and save it. That was one that we debated yeah. asking you, but I was like, I feel like everybody asked her to read they that. They do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, it, is, it is a very good piece. It's definitely a it, good piece. It reminds, it reminds me of um, my cousin. Uh-oh, I'm going to put him on black. Because <laughs> um, me and my aunt caught, caught him when he was, I think, seven, all behind the couch also with a, with a little boy. Wow. Oh, like us. Like, you know, and then... He yeah. would, um, I would remind him of stories, you know, when he, when I was starting to mm-hmm. feel like he was, he was ready. I would tell him he would, I would, he would get my, my towel and would put it as his hair. Cause mm. I, I've always had this long hair and would follow me around or like um, the pillowcase. Well, you know, like it, it is, it is very healing and I think that's why we, we are very close up to this day even though we live in different mm. countries because I was not afraid to tell him you know mm. this was you think about it if it's not you fine if it's still you great yeah. you know and I that's why I was like I really like this piece <laughs> I'm like yeah I even like took a screenshot of it and I think I even sent it to him Oh wow! So wow. you know, his response was like the crying emoji. Mm. <laughs> so I love that. Yep. How do you write your poetry? Like, do you have a ritual or like a time frame of how you do it, or is it kind of like it just comes when it comes? No, it comes when it comes. I mean, I'm always thinking in poetry. You know what the cool thing is, though? I married a poet. We met at poetry class. You know, and like he's a computer programmer so like he doesn't spend his whole day thinking about it but like we write all every day right so like that's just like a daily ritual in my house so people always ask me that question and I never know what to say there's no like magical ritual of like writing for us we literally are constantly talking about poetry all the time because we I married a poet so like we talk about it talk about it talk about it um but what I will say is I had a teacher that told me certain certain people have poems speak to them. Other people have poems that speak through them. I think that I'm a poet that is spoken through. I will be honest, when I go to sit down, there's no like formulaic. They just like, it, it washes over me. It just like comes to me um, in a way that sometimes like my essays do, like the, the recent essay that I did that's very much so like the catapult essay, uh, knee length that talks all about like repression too it just like whoosh, just like flooded out um and that's how my poems are too so there's no ritual I just when it comes to me I will say I have to like Kalisa stop what you're doing get that down because literally after it washes over me if I don't get it down on something it'll just like fly away and I don't know what that is but the thought of it will just kind of like melt away so I have to be like Ooh. so how do yeah. you do that like if you're in the car? Because that has happened to me before where I'm like driving and I'm like, hmm, that's a good line. And I know, like you said, if I don't <laughs> write, write it down, it's going to go away. Do you ever have those moments where like you pull out your phone and just record your voice notes? Yeah, yeah. So all of my mentors say always keep, if you're that kind of person that constantly has ideas, which my mind is, voice notes, pull over and do a quick little phone note I keep chicken scratch paper like everywhere I go. And again, like it doesn't always turn into something because I have like 
six and seven different jobs. And so a lot of times I don't discipline myself enough to like make it into something, but I just like chicken scratch it down or like voice note record it. Or like I have a Google doc full of like thousands of just like one-liners that have never turned into anything, but I just have so many ideas. So, yeah. Yeah. I used to do that and I would write on like receipts in the Mm -hmm. car and then Mm -hmm. my mom would come and clean the car. And I'm like, (laughs) I had, and she was like, what that little piece of paper, that receipt, I threw that in the trash. I'm like, no mama, that had a, that had poems on it. It had a novel on it. My whole novel was written on it. I could have had a Pulitzer Prize in there. I didn't she, know she, she still does it. <laughs> she still leaves post-it notes everywhere, writing everything on a little piece of paper. It's a habit. And then my son would be like, <laughs> so how did you decide which uh, poems would be part of, of this book and how did you decide to put them in order? So I guess I'll uh, answer those two different ways. So the the way that I decided the poems that were going to be in this book, really, I had two books in my head. So that's kind of like how Unlearned Eden, ironically, they wanted the people that are publishing my next book and the book after that, they all wanted this book. And I was like, nah, homie, I got two other books in my head. So you're going to take these two other books. (laughs) Um, So when I was in my master's program, really honestly, I worked with, so Claudia and Ada were my thesis advisors. They helped me decide like what a cohesive, I know, right? What a cohesive book looks like. Cause at the time I was like, you know, 20 something trying to figure out how you make a cohesive book. And so they helped me say, okay, you need to tell a story. You just can't have random poems in a book. So we decided based on what poems told a cohesive story. They weren't in any like order that didn't come until you know, I got the, the book deal and, and Red Press or Red Hen was like, yeah, we want the book. Um, so those kind of happened at two different stages. First was like in 2017, when I graduated with my master's, they said, okay, it's dope. It's a cohesive story. I signed off, got my degree, was like, whoop, whoop. Then when Red, <laughs> Red Hen Press um, saw the book, they were like, yeah, you're going to need to like actually put this into segments. And so they left it up to me and Thank God my husband is a poet because we took three weekends and I was like, you're not leaving anywhere until we order this book. You're going to help me. I'm going to print this out. We're going to order it. We're going to order some pizza, some beers, and we're going to sit here and you ain't going nowhere until we're done (laughs) ordering this book. (laughs) And so I locked my husband in a room and we ordered these, ordered these poems um, in the way that they are now. And he also helped me understand the element piece too because I was like oh yeah wouldn't it be cool if I did like wind water fire and he was like yeah because you gotta there has to be some reason or rhyme (laughs) there has to be logic behind why you're doing that so yeah that's how that's how that came together so we're at the point of our conversation where we like to ask um, the most hard-hitting question of all of our guests and we want to know what are your top five books of all time Ooh, okay. <clears throat> so number one probably will be a toss-up. It's always gonna be number one, Toni Morrison. So it's always gonna be probably like Sula or Bluest Eye. Um because they were the most impactful, influential. Number two is probably going to be. I always want to say go tell it on the mountain just because of how by Langston Hughes or I'm sorry, not by Langston, but um, why did his name escape me? James. 
James, James Baldwin, Baldwin. <laughs> right? Because of how the symbolism of like Southern repression, queerness, and all of the things that we don't talk about in the Black community and church culture and all of that. Um, so that had a huge influence. Um, and then what's funny is I, I mentioned her in the book, but I met Alice Walker and I told her how much the color purple just like really affected me. Um, because again, those same topics of like trauma and pain and abuse and all the things that I saw as a kid, I had never seen anybody talk about these subjects. Um, and so that's up there. Um, definitely after working with Claudia, Citizen will forever, forever live with me. And then last will be Audre Lorde, probably... I always want to say Sister Outsider just because, I mean, I love all her work, but Sister Outsider did something to me too, just as far as like identity and queer Black queerness. Um, I think those are my five because those were like firsts for me. Like the first time that I had seen anybody talk about these subjects and I felt so seen, known, and heard through those books. So those are going to be my, are those, is that five? Yes. yes. Yeah, and you, okay. I think of all the guests that we've had yes. on this show, you had it on point. You were ready. You're like, if anyone ever asked me this question, I got these answers. I got these answers. Um, is there anything that we should know about what's coming in the yep. future for you? Eden? Yes. Yes. Okay. I have two things. So Unlearning Eden, uh, if all goes well, that's going to be published January 2022. Uh, and that's going to be almost considered a YA novel in verse is what they're trying to get me to lean towards. So that's going to be exciting um, because I've got tons of pros in that one uh, about the body and sex and sexuality and being a young girl exploring my queerness. So that's going to be fun. That's where the ratchet poems are. So excited. Um, but in that same vein, what I'm really excited about is I'm writing a romance novel. Um, yeah. And so I'm in the midst of writing a Black Southern romance novel. Uh, and I am super excited about it. It's like all that I can think about every day. So that's going to be something very different for me, but I'm, I'm very excited. Uh, so that'll be done soon. I'm querying, you know, pitches for that right now. Uh, and so fingers crossed that that makes it way its way into the world. So yeah, those are yeah. exciting things, different things, right? But mm -hmm. all in the same, like kind of, you know, yeah, like message. Yeah. We're so, yeah. excited about that. That, sure. that would be cool. Please come again. <laughs> I will. And yeah. come and talk, talk, talk about whatever talk. you talk. You can talk about what, if you wrote an article, we would have you on that show. Oh my gosh. Article, Cause everything you write is amazing. Thank um, you. And you know, everything you do, all of, all of the decisions in your writing is perfect. Um, we know that there's one decision that was not perfect, which was you going to um, North Carolina. <laughs> oh, here, we, here we go. Round one. But um, <laughs> I, you know, I was. You have to stop family. this but I was too lazy to go downstairs to get it from out of the clothes hamper. So I'll just Photoshop it <laughs> later, but um, yes. <laughs> you have to stop this hate for Aggie pride. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't carry that hate around in your heart. Now, you know, I can't talk too much trash because y'all definitely have whipped our behinds for the last few um, meetups. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I, I, 
I believe in I believe in a guy who can answer all my prayers. <laughs> <laughs> and as we make it make our way out of this pandemic, and we, I just found out that we were in a new a new division now. We we left the Miac, and now we're mm-hmm. in back. So we should see yep. how that unfolds. But mm-hmm. hopefully, with this new turn that we can mm-hmm. find vengeance um, and justice. Don't- on- don't do that He's don't do that violence i'm so sorry don't don't do that that's just wrong there needs to be love throughout the hbcus not hatred well, you know there's a there is a love there but we have to also keep it real here <laughs> on the book okay okay but thank you so much for coming on to our show and and thank you I'm so um, grateful that disha has introduced <laughs> us to your work um Mm -hmm. for everybody that's listening please go to your local your indie bookstores online and grab you a copy of this beauty the cover is amazing it's beautiful i love it and um the writing in it is tremendous so thank you so much for coming thank you is it okay before we let you go if you read one more of course which one do you want me to read I guess you might as well read mackerel. Don't do that because everybody has me read mackerel. Oh my gosh. I mean, we did talk about it. So I'm sure the people listening are going to want to know. Okay. You know what? The people that came to my book tour are going to be like, Kalisa, listen, if you read this poem one more time. (laughs) All right, y'all. This is mackerel. When I was 12 or 13, my mama caught me and a special girlfriend bouncing our vaginas off the end of the bedpost like live bait. Our bodies rubbing against the maple wood, trying to catch a spark on the cold hard thing between our legs was an awakening. The mesquite of our innocence rising to where my mother and her friend sat talking. And we were just at the point of falling off the bone. The moment when the pink of the salmon is so tender, when my mother opened the door, doused our flames with holy water and scripture and made us promise to forget the sweet communion of burning. Years after she scrubbed the cedar from our clothes, I learned that my body is only alive when it is free to choose when and where it starts a fire. How long it allows itself to be wet and waiting The power comes in knowing that my body is no tadpole, no fish to roast over hot coals. It is the flame itself, the blue and red ghost that survives even after the smoke clears. And let the church say amen. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming to our show. We really, really appreciate this time. And hopefully... You come back for learning Eden and for your <laughs> romance. I will. This has been a joy. We gotta like kick it off, Mike, because this has been fun. Oh yeah. We, yes, we'll talk. I'll tell you the juicy behind the scene secrets of people that have acted a fool on right, podcast and record now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again. See you soon. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. 
Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.